Dr. Williams, in many ways, has already laid the ground on one subject I wish to address, because there's two estates, as it were, in the world. There is the church, and there is the secular, or as the Bible contrast is between the people of God and the world. And the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, made that very plain. When he said, in the world ye shall have trouble, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Again, we have it in 1 John, as, wherein he speaks about the fact that the whole world lieth in wickedness. And there are many scriptures to this end. In John chapter 3, for instance, it talks about the generality of men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. Neither will they come to the light, lest their deeds should be reproved. It speaks in Ephesians 5 and 8 about the Christians. He said, ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. 1 Colossians, rather, 1, 9, we have been delivered from the power of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. And as we are also reminded by Dr. Williams, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of darkness and wickedness, our wicked spirits, in high places. And the Apostle Paul, of course, uses rather militaristic terminology when he speaks of our contending where he exhorts us to take to ourselves the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand. And in the evil day, and this is an evil day, and having done all to stand. Now, the evils that have come upon us as a nation, and it applies really to the Western world in general where the gospel was known, is a result of what we have heard earlier on, and that is a departure from biblical Christianity. It has affected, of course, the major denominations and is affecting and infecting the evangelical constituency uh, to a very great degree. And uh, the number one thing you must not do, as far as modern evangelicalism is concerned, is to upset anybody. Hence, we have what's called the love gospel. God has only got one attribute. And uh, as somebody remarked, it's no longer that God is love, but love is God. Of course, God is love but he's also holiness, righteousness, and so on. In fact, the holiness of God is the most emphasized attribute right through the scriptures, but that's obviously not popular. And we do have today an evangelicalism, not only does it focus on the love of God, but it doesn't deal with sin, which is the problem, of course. And we have a conversion without a repentance. 
This is epitomized in the Alpha Course, of which the Archbishop of Canterbury is a prime example, so that when informed of the Bishop of Grantham's uh, <laughs> matrimonial circumstances, it, in his terminology, was of little or no consequence. And this, of course, is not confined to the Church of England by any manner of means. We have uh, that fellow, the head of Oasis, Steve Chalk, who performs same-sex marriage. And we have increasing uh, tolerance of all sorts of sin, including same-sex marriage, in evangelical circles. And you'll hear terminology used... Uh, Number one, judgmental. That's a favorite one. In my experience, in talking to people about these sort of things, there's only one verse of scripture they seem to know, thou shalt not judge, at least one part of scripture. And uh, we're, we simply, evangelicalism is to be nice. Now, I'm not suggesting we be horrible to people, but... We must be nice, and we must have a big smile on our face. I, I find it very hard to smile, but it doesn't mean I'm unhappy. It's just how I am. Uh, if you smile, that's fine. Um, but, you see, the point is the gospel is an offense to them that perish. Because, as was quoted earlier on, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my pathway, or is it the other way around? I never can remember. And the entrance of thy word giveth or bringeth light. And when the Lord Jesus Christ came to the world, into the world, it says the people that sat in darkness. Now this was to Israel, which God had made known his oracles, whereas the Gentile world was considered to be in the outer Darkness, so to speak. But when he came to Israel, he said they sat in darkness. That denotes they were at ease in that darkness. They saw a great light, which was Christ himself. Not that there was light shining through his raiment, apart from the Mount of Transfiguration, but because of what he did and what he said and preached and proclaimed. And uh, the result was... They rejected him. And therefore, we must expect the same. Uh, the world is not going to welcome us with open arms. As I've heard some foolish evangelists and such like preaching. Uh, they say, well, the sinners are just longing and waiting to hear the message of the gospel. It's they're doing what they're doing because they're just ignorant of the gospel. If they hear it... Oh, they'll embrace it. Well, I don't know what planet these people are living on, but this is not the real world. Now, what I'm trying to portray to you is this, that there are two kingdoms in this world, although God is sovereign over all. There's the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, and they're one and the same thing as dispensationalists try to split them up. And there's the kingdom of darkness, ruled over by Satan, albeit under the sovereignty of God and there is a war between them and it is a war the weapons of our warfare said Paul are not carnal but spiritual 
mighty through God to the pulling down of the strongholds of Satan. And it is the duty of all Christians to contend for the faith against error and against the wrongs of society. But it is my contention, and there's nothing new in this, that the problem, of course, begins in a nation that has known the truth, has been affected by the truth. You know, this nation, for instance, our laws once, generally speaking, reflected the Mosaic law. But that was a result of the struggles of our forefathers in establishing the truth. And, of course, parliamentary democracy itself was the result of the struggles of the, that much maligned man, Cromwell, and the parliamentarians uh, to establish the supremacy of parliament rather than dictatorship and tyranny of monarchy and so on. And it was a result, you see, of the word of God being preached, people being converted, their lives being changed, using that influence in their lives to influence the uh, society in which they lived. And so godly laws were passed and, uh, you know, the struggle, slavery abolished, working hours were reduced for children, etc. That, but that was the result of the Great Awakening. Uh, the trouble with the social gospel is it's putting the cart before the horse, or really putting the horse in the cart, perhaps, mixing the two together. You see, what I'm saying is this. You cannot change society unless the hearts of men and women are changed. Because society is a reflection of the state, the fallen state of human beings. And there's only one antidote to that, and that is the preaching of the word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, therefore we have to contend in two directions. First and foremost, we have to contend against error in the church. Now I have to tell you this, <laughs> that I have personally received more nastiness from so-called Christians than possibly, well, new Sodom isn't very pleasant, I'd have to say, in their reaction. But the ordinary run-of-the-mill unbeliever is far less unpleasant than compromised Christians, giving them the benefit of the doubt. But we have to deal with this because that is the root cause of the problem in our nation, in that the historic denominations and evangelicalism, as we've been hearing, and it's not a recent thing, have largely departed from biblical Christianity. Not only is evolution accepted by some quite a number and growing number of evangelicals, but there is this loss of confidence in the word of God and loss of confidence in the mythology that the word of God lays down, namely, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And of course there is that promise. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world or the age. And this is precisely what the apostles did. 
in the power of the Holy Spirit. I will come back to that. And so it was said of them, these are the men who've turned the world upside down. Actually, they turned it the right way up because it was upside down. But they were having this influence. And you see, the Apostle Paul, when he was dealing with the Corinthian church, which was, of course, a Greek church, and as you know, the Greeks, with their philosophizing, considered themselves to be the fount of all wisdom, he said, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. You see, that must be our priority, that the truth of Scripture is made known, and this especially, and to begin with, within the professing church itself. Because let's face it, by and large, Christianity has become ineffective, has no uh, influence upon society. They are dismissed as being a fringe group, and extremists, etc., etc. As we well know now, you are an extremist for believing what was the norm 50 or 60 years ago. That's how far down we have gone. But it began with the undermining of the word of God, as we have heard. Satan's not stupid. He didn't start with the man in the pew. He went into the seminaries. At least he sent his agents into the seminary, and they are and were the agents of Satan. Because, you see, he poisoned the stream at its fountainhead. And when you poison the seminaries, you poison the pulpit. When you poison the pulpit, you poison the pew. The result is that Christianity has become largely ineffective, ignored, and worse than useless. You know the Lord Jesus Christ said about ye are the salt of the earth. If the salt has lost its savour, wherewith shall it be salted? It is therefore what? Good for nothing, but to be trodden under the foot of men. And that's why the well treats the church with contempt. Now previous generations, the ungodly didn't like the church, but they did at least have respect for it. And I think it was our brother Peter telling us that the politicians in the late 1800s would throw a kite up in the air, as they say, they suggest something that they might want to do, and then they waited for the reaction of the nonconformist pulpit. And if it was adverse, it was quietly dropped. Imagine that happening today. Of course not. And so we are in this position where the church has largely, not altogether, praise the Lord, lost its way. The true church will continue, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But there is much confusion, there is much unbelief, and, you know, once you lose faith in the word of God, you're adrift. You're adrift on a sea of infidelity. And there's no knowing where things will end up. Well, they'll end up shipwrecked. That's what will happen. Not to the true Christian, of course. Now, what are we therefore to do about this? Well, as I say, first and foremost, we need to speak to Christians, speak to the church. I, I've used I, Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah as an example because... Uh, well, I'll read a, a verse of scripture first which describes uh, really the state 
we're in. Now, people, of course, will say, well, Israel was a theocracy. Well, yes, that is true. But in a manner of speaking, as a manner of speaking, this nation, when it became a Christian nation, invested commas, was, in a manner of speaking, now, understand me, it was not a theocracy, but the word of God and the, the reverence for the word of God had great influence in the nation. And uh, he, he said, we find it in Jeremiah 5 and 30, a wonderful and horrible thing is committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and their priests bear rule by their means. And my people love to have it so. And what will ye do in the end thereof? You could preach a sermon on that, couldn't you? What will ye do in the end thereof? And when Jeremiah was called by God, Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 10, See, I have this day set thee over the nations, over the kingdoms, to root out, to pull down, and to destroy to throw down, to build, and to plant. So his ministry was not limited to Israel as such. Even to this day, of course, his words have an effect uh, on us and society at large. And God then commanded him to do certain things, and I can't go into them all, but he commanded him in the first instance, Jeremiah 32, for this city hath been to me as a provocation of mine anger and of my fury from the day that they built it even unto this day, that I should not remove it from before my face, because of all the evil of the children of Israel and of the children of Judah, which they have done to provoke me to anger. They, their kings, their princes, their priests, their prophets. You see, the two estates are included in that. The princes, the rulers... And then the, those responsible for the instruction and performance, of course, of the uh, things enjoined under the old covenant. And they have turned unto me the back and not the face, though I taught them, rising up early and teaching them, yet have they not hearkened to receive instruction. But what I want to bring to your attention was that twofold Complaint of God, if you like, both the priests and the uh, princes were involved in this uh, destruction that had uh, come upon the nation and the situation as it then was. And God commanded Jeremiah to go and stand at the entrance to the temple and to preach to the people. They were the religious people of the day. They were the ones who uh, practiced idolatry and still thought that they could uh, go to the house of God and everything was all right. We turn to Jeremiah 26 again, uh, verse 7 and 8. Now Jeremiah is reprimanding them over their sin. Verse 7. So the priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. Now it came to pass when Jeremiah had made an end of speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak unto all the people, that the priests and the prophets and all the people took him, saying, Thou shalt surely die. 
because he was prophesying the destruction of the temple as it had in Shiloh, the tabernacle in Shiloh. And in this occasion, it was the princes that prevailed in preventing him being killed by the priests and the prophets. See what I meant about the nastiness <laughs> you get from professing Christians. They wanted to kill him. Later on, of course, in the reign of Jehoiakim, when he, the scroll that he had caused to be written by, by Ruth was brought into the king's presence, he cut it up and threw it into the fire. Well, I'm sure if it was today that uh, the people of God, the average one anyway, would say, well, it's no good, we give up. What's the point? But of course, uh, Jeremiah called the, caused the scroll to be written down again, and he added some other words onto it. So you see, there was this persistent witnessing to the prophets and the priests, but also to the, what we might call the secular rulers in society. And we have, I say, the same job today. And to the the church of God, we have to call them back to biblical standards because they have largely departed from them. And as I say, the cardinal sin is that we must not upset people. Well, I'm sorry, we're in the business of upsetting people, not being, by being obnoxious, not being horrible, just by preaching the truth. Because the Bible says the gospel is an offense to them that perish. And when you tell a person that they're a sinner going to hell unless they repent, that's offensive. Of course it is. It's not nice to be told the truth about yourself. It's not nice to be reminded there is a judgment to which you will give an account. And that... Of course, if they are of a religious bent, to tell them that all their religious rituals and works are of no avail. In addition, we need to warn God's people about being involved with false versions of Christianity, such as the ecumenical movement. Paul was very clear on this. In fact, he spoke about the world in Ephesians, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but what? Rather, reprove them. Also, in regard to idolatrous worship, he says, what agreement hath the people of God, or the temple of God, with idols? Wherefore, come out from amongst them, and be ye separate, and touch not the unclean thing." We should not fellowship with those who deny biblical truth. And especially those who deny the biblical way of salvation. Now the Church of Rome, you know, pronounces a hundred anathemas upon Bible-believing Christians. Read the Council of Trent, which is regarded as infallible. And in it... For instance, the cardinal doctrine of the Reformation, justification by faith, uh, they plainly state if a man says we justified by faith uh, without works, let him be anathema, let him be accursed. Now, 
I can have no fellowship with a Roman Catholic on that basis alone, and of course it's idolatry and all the rest of it. And the same goes if any cardinal doctrine is denied by so-called Protestant churches, and we heard this was the battle in the 20s and the 30s, and, and, and they thereafter in America and in this country, it was over cardinal fundamental doctrines of the word of God. And surely one of the most fundamental of all is that the Bible is the word of God. Once you depart from that, you're in trouble. And we have to say to the churches who profess to be Christian that the Bible, and by the way, I don't want to get into versionism, but there are versions around today that undermine cardinal doctrines, for instance, the divinity of Christ. And that needs to be said. But we have to call people, God's people, back, that call themselves God's people, back to the word of God, that it is the word of God. It is the inerrant word of God. That it is the inspired word of God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and so on. If we're adrift on that, we're adrift on everything else. Now, I can't have any fellowship with anybody who denies that the Bible is in its entirety the word of God because they're on the high road to destruction. I cannot have fellowship with anybody who denies the virgin birth, the blood atonement, like Steve Chalk, who says that a substitutionary atonement is nothing but cosmic child abuse. Like God said to Ezekiel in the captivity, he says, Come, I will show you yet greater abominations. And he revealed to him in a vision what was going on behind the scenes. So first and foremost, we have to contend against compromised Christianity. And that which goes by the name of Christianity. Because you see, the state of the nation is the result of the state of the church. As goes the church, as somebody said, so goes the nation. And I'm sure I've quoted this to you before. William Cowper said, when a nation is to perish in its sin, tis in the church the leprosy begins. And there is a leprosy in the church, and it's devastating. Modernism is one of it, one of the things which has undermined people's trust in the word of God Charismaticism is another because they are adding to the word of God. And have you noticed it is the charismatics that are really fueling the ecumenical movement. The old traditional ecumenical movement was dying on its feet but it has received a new impetus from people like Nicky Gumbel and such like. How is it that the Church of Rome loves the Alpha Course? That tells you straight off it's not from the word of God because they wouldn't have nothing to do with it. So the problem is, first and foremost, with the church. We have to contend against compromise. And, uh, oh, you'll not be liked for it. You'll be a bigot and an extremist. And I was called a 2,000-year-old man. I'm a bit older than that. <laughs> and uh, other nice things. But what of it? We have to contend for the truth of the word of God. And if we don't start there, the rest is... Waste it. If we don't get biblical Christianity by the grace and power of God reestablished, we're wasting our time. Now we do have to speak out against evils in society. 
And these evils in society have arisen because of the unfaithfulness of the church. Now those of us who are getting long in the tooth, I don't feel long in the tooth, but my body's letting me know I am. But I remember in the 1950s, of course a bit different in Ireland than here, but I'm sure it was the same here. The, yes, there was wickedness in society, of course there was. But it was a far different society to, it is, to what it is today. The things now that are in your face today, that are legally approved today, like abortion, like sodomy, and such like, were unknown apart from underground in those far-off days. I never heard of homosexuality, even in the Air Force, apart from the odd mention of dirty old men hanging around public conveniences. But now, our children are being indoctrinated with it from four years old and upwards. What has the evangelicals been doing about it? Well, thank God some have. But you see, evildoers, as it tells us, will grow wax west and west unless there is a revival of biblical Christianity. And as I say, we can only... Well, as Christians, the first thing we need to do, I, I'm running out of time, the first thing we need to do is this. We need to pray for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on us. You see, what changed the cowardly disciples into being bold as lions? It was the outpouring of the Spirit of God. Contrast Peter denying the Lord Jesus Christ with a curse, and then him facing up to the high priests and uh, the people in general. And uh, I close with this. I don't know where time goes. I think, I think Mr. Simpson has a, a fast clock. <laughs> but just, just, you know, I often point people out to this. You see, here, here's an example of preaching as it ought to be on the day of Pentecost. Now remember, they had... The Jews had crucified the Messiah and the, the, the hatred against him was unbelievable and it was a dangerous thing to even mention it. So what does Paul do, uh, sorry, Peter do on the day of Pentecost? This is the, the cowardly Peter, you know, the denier. He says this, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, and no doubt some of them were involved in it, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. How unloving. That was a dangerous thing to say, wasn't it? That could have been... The end of them, because you see it was the hot topic of the day, and like Luther said, if you're not prepared to speak out against the prevalent sin of the day, you're not being true to the word of God. Whom God has raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. And therefore he goes on to speak about this and what had happened. But you see how how absolutely upfront he was. He challenged them with their sin, and that most heinous of sins. What was the result of that? Men and brethren, what shall we do? You see, 
It didn't put them off, did it? It drove them to their knees by the convicting power of the Holy Ghost. That didn't always happen, we must say, because when Stephen testified of their wickedness, they stoned him. So one or the other can happen. But the point is, the apostles' preaching was pointed. Christ's preaching was pointed. It didn't seek to minimize sin. It didn't seem to, you know, put salve on and make people easy in their sin. And it is our business to challenge sin in church and state. And God willing, I'll be at the Conservative Party conference with our brother Peter Simpson to do that very thing, to remind them what their responsibilities are under God. And you know, if you go down to the House of Parliament, in the lobby, you will see, except the Lord build a house, they labor in vain that build it. That tells you the influence Christianity had in former days. Dear friends, in summarizing, we have to launch a twofold attack. The prime one is to proclaim the truth of God, to challenge what's happening in the churches today, especially in evangelicalism, to challenge them on the truth of the word of God, the plenary inspiration of it, the cardinal doctrines of the word of God, the necessity of the preaching of repentance toward God and faith in Christ without which nobody can be a Christian, to challenge the compromise, etc., and to challenge the evils in society that are a result of or have been allowed to occur because of the failure of the church. And I want to say again to you, and I might have said it before, where does the prime blame lie for the state of our nation? At the door of the church. Amen.